Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I recently came across this quote from a Scottish philosopher. His name is Alasdair MacIntyre. And he said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story do I find myself a part? Let me read that again. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story do I find myself a part? I think he's so right. Some of you might be familiar with Michael Goheen. He used to be a professor up at Redeemer University up on the mountain. He wrote a book called The Drama of Scripture, and in it, Michael Goheen said, the question is not whether the whole of our lives will be shaped by some grand story. The only question is which grand story will shape our lives. For the one who has heard Jesus call to follow him, the call comes with a summons to enter the story of which he was the climactic moment, the story narrated in the Bible. It's an invitation to find our place in that story. Do you hear that? The Bible is an invitation to find our place in that story that God is telling. And I, I want that for us, don't you? We want to we wanna find our place in the big story that God is telling, don't you? Over the last few months, we've been talking a lot about the Bible. And today we begin a new series, a journey in the Bible called For God's Sake, so that we can hear the story that the Bible is telling us about why this is all here, why we are here, why God made us, why we exist, where all this is going and why. I think if this thing works, if this series works, a couple of things are going to happen. First, God's Spirit is just going to give us so much hope and strength and encouragement as we learn to see our lives in light of the story that God is telling. But the other thing that I think will happen is it's going to help us to confront some of the other stories that we've told ourselves. There are these other sort of counter narratives that a lot of us, I think, have internalized. And as we hear the truth, I think that some of those untrue stories are going to become less and less powerful and they'll lose their hold over us. Wouldn't that be great? So that's why we're doing this. That's why we're in this series called For God's Sake. Now, where should we begin? Where do we begin? Well, there's this old adage you may have heard, show me your gods, I'll show you a people. Show me your gods and I'll show you a people. In other words, you can tell a lot about a people from the God that they claim to worship. Like you, be, you become what you worship. And, and I think that that's true. We could think of the ancient Babylonian culture and, and their creation story. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's really interesting. The Babylonians worshipped a, a god named Baal. Uh, they worshipped him by the name Marduk. But uh, the story goes that there was this god of chaos, Tiamat, and she was really tired of all the noisy gods and she was getting ready, ready to, to kill all the gods. And Marduk rose up and he made a deal with the other gods. If, if the other gods agree to let Marduk be the chief god, he'll fight Tiamat. Well, he did. So he, he fought Tiamat, he, he won. And when, when, when Marduk killed Tiamat, he chopped her body in half. And out of half of Tiamat's body, he made the sky and, and the universe. 
And uh, with the other half, he made the earth. In fact, with some of the blood that was left over from the, the corpse of Tiamat, Baal, or Marduk, created the human race. That's where, according to the Babylonian story, that's where we come from. And now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that wherever people worshipped Baal, there was immorality, and there was child sacrifice, and there was war, and violence, and genocide. And, of course, there was, because their story begins in violence and death. That's what being a Baal worshiper demands of you because you become what you worship, right? And so we, we see it's true. Show me your gods, show me your idols. I can tell you what the people are like. Show me a God, I'll show you a people. I think the opposite is also true. And so, so I would add to that phrase. I'd add, show me a people and I'll show you their gods, like I, you can, I think you can tell what a people truly believe by watching their lifestyles, right? Don't you think that that's true? Like if it's true that you can tell a lot about a people by the God that they claim to worship, I think it's also true that you can tell the God that their people truly worship by watching their lifestyle. So show me a people, I'll show you their God. I think especially in the church, in the church we say there is one God, we worship him alone, and we know better than to allow other gods to direct our lives. We're like, are you crazy? Of course, of course there's only one God. Of course there's only one God for us. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's always true. In fact, I'm sure that it's not always true. I think we may not worship other gods per se, but I think there are certain uh, idols and certain powers that function like gods in our lives and in our culture. Don't you think that that's true? And, and that's why we're starting this series with God, okay? Rather than beginning with creation, we're going to go back before the beginning. And we need to be reminded what we mean when we talk about God. I think we're going to find the scriptures have some really helpful, helpful, encouraging, unique things to say to us. But before, before we get there, I just want to get really basic and ask the question, what is God like? Like, what does scripture teach us about what God is like? Now, we're going to have a whole sermon series this summer teaching us about the attributes of God. But for today, I just want to highlight a few things Scripture teaches us about God. Like, for example, a great starting point is that God is love. Like, Scripture tells us that love is what God is. First John 4, 7 and 8. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, God is love and God is holy. So this is another attribute. God is set apart. He's, there is no one like God. He is perfectly, unapproachably righteous and holy. And in 1 Peter 1, we read that just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy, for I am holy. So we could get into the omnis of, of God when we talk about his attributes. Like we could talk about how God is omnipotent. Omnipotent means that God is almighty. He's, un, he's unstoppable. God does whatever God intends to do. So Daniel 4, God's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
Okay, God is omnipotent. God is also omnipresent. That means that God is everywhere at once. Okay, there's nowhere that God cannot see because he's in all places at once. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So God is omnipotent. Scripture reveals God as omniscient. Like he knows everything. That's what that word means. There's nothing that's hidden. There's no secrets from God. Okay, so so Hebrews 4, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God is omniscient, okay? He knows everything. Nothing catches him by surprise. God is also timeless. He's timeless. You might say he's eternal. So God is never late. He's never stressed out. God is never catching up because he's outside of time, okay? Uh, 2 Peter 3, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. God isn't bent out of shape about timing, okay? God is timeless. God is also changeless. God isn't learning. God isn't evolving or growing, you know? Uh, So Numbers 23 says, God is not a human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. And we could go on and on with a whole bunch of other attributes of God. But the one that blows the mind, I think, is this one. That God is Trinity. God is Trinity. He is triune. Now, you might not think of Trinity as an attribute of God. But I want to suggest that it is the attribute of God. I think this is the attribute that defines our God. This is the one that sort of... Uh, encapsulates all the others and, and absorbs and takes up all the others into it, that God is Trinity. There's a lot of people in our culture who still think of God as this old man in the sky with a beard. That's never been who he is. The church has always worshipped one God who is three persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Okay, That's who God has always been. Another way to think of Trinity is to say that the Trinity is one what and in and it's uh, three who's. Okay, the Trinity is one what and three who's. I don't know if, I don't know if that's helpful, maybe not. Another way to say it is this. The Trinity is our best explanation for why scripture is so clear that there is only one God. And at the same time, scripture is so clear that there are these three distinct persons who do the things that only God can do. Okay, so a few weeks ago, we met Athanasius of Alexandria, and he was this amazing theologian who who protected the church from the heresy of Arianism, if you remember that message a few weeks ago. In the fourth century, he was writing about the Trinity. He wasn't using the word, but he was writing all about the Trinity. He said, Almighty is the Father, Almighty is the Son, Almighty is the Spirit, and yet there are not three Almighty beings, but one who is Almighty. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. And even though Scripture never uses the word Trinity, okay, let's be honest, you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible, even though that's true, the idea, the concept of Trinity is actually all over the place. Like, people didn't make this up. So John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So before there was a world, before the world was made, there are these equal persons together with one another. Both of them are God, but one is called the Word. Okay, and they're before the beginning, they're there, they're together, they're one, but they're distinct. Now, the one who's called the Word, John, who who wrote this gospel, he's later going to identify the Word as Jesus. Well, there's another passage, it's it's Matthew 28. This is where uh, Jesus is just about to be uh, ascended into heaven, and he sends his followers out to make disciples, and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Matthew 28. Uh, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if that really grabs you, but I want you to notice, though, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit share one name. Like, when, when, when we baptize someone, we don't baptize them into three names. We're not baptized into three gods who have the same name. We're baptized into uh, one God in three persons. Okay, one, one God, three persons, one name. Okay, um, there's another way we could come at this in scriptures to see the different ways that the uh, New Testament writers sometimes put Father, Son, and Spirit side by side in the same verse or in the same blessing sometimes. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, Paul does this. He says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, what he's doing is he's blessing these people by invoking the three persons by the name God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And the thing is, unless they are God, like unless they hold the rank of God, unless they can do the things that God can do, this blessing doesn't really mean that much. That's not a great blessing if we're not talking about God here, okay? Now, there are other places we can find these three uh, named together in the same verse. I got some scripture references there on the slide, but I think perhaps the best place to see the Trinity uh, interacting and relating is in John 17, which we heard uh, read earlier. This is where Jesus is making his his making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's before he's arrested. This is what he's praying. Now we heard it read. Let's just let's just make a few observations. I want to share a few verses and and make some observations about this passage. Uh, as it informs us about the Trinity. Verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Okay, now this is Jesus, and in his prayer, he's helping us to understand that there was a glory that Jesus had in God's presence, okay? He was in the presence of the Father, and he had a glory with the Father before the world began. Right? They shared this glory and they had that in common before there was anything else. That's a, that's a big deal. Well, a little further down the passage, verse 21, Jesus prays to the Father for us. He prays in verse 21 that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So, it's interesting, you know, our unity shows the world, preaches to the world that the Father sent Jesus. That Jesus didn't just show up and he's not just some random, you know, teacher or prophet or something. He was sent by God the Father and, and our unity proclaims that. 
That's pretty beautiful. This is a prayer for us. It's a prayer for our unity, that, that we would be one, Jesus says, just as the Father and the Son are one. That the oneness between the Father and the Son would be the same as the oneness uh, between brothers and sisters in a church, between different churches in a denomination, and between different churches across denominations. That's how Jesus prays for our unity, that we would be one just as the Father and the Son are one. Now, if they're not really one, if there's no sense of unity between the Father and the Son, if they're not actually, you know, in some ways one and the same, this isn't really a great prayer to pray because there's not really a unity. You know what I mean? Like if Jesus is praying that we would be one and the fa- as the Father and the Son are one, but the Father and the Son aren't really one, there's not really, this isn't a prayer for unity. But they are one. The Father and the Son are one. And, 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 and to the degree that they are one, Jesus prays that we would be one as well. Well, that's a lot of unity. And that's what Jesus prayed for before he was arrested. Now come with me to verse 24. This is the last one. Jesus says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. This just, this, this blows the mind. Listen to this. Before the creation of the world, okay? So we, we know that the Father and the Son shared a kind of glory. We, we know that already from verse 5. But this says, before the creation of the world, okay? We know that the Father and the Son shared a kind of glory. We know that from verse 5. But this goes on in here. Jesus says that before the creation of the world, they loved each other. The Father loved the Son before the creation of the world. Like before you and I were born, before our parents were born, before there was such a thing as Hamilton or Canada or people, before there were people or a planet Earth, before there was oxygen or light or time or any other created thing, before there was any of that, there was love flowing back and forth between the Father and the Son. And that love is is displayed by this glory that flows between the Father and the Son. And it has been doing that, it always has been, since before the creation of the world. Do you see that there? Do you see that in this passage? Man, it, that blows my mind. You know, if you, um, if you go to a, a, some Greek weddings, you'll see during the reception and the dance that comes after, there's this uh, sometimes a, a circle that forms of, of three or more people. And they'll join hands and they'll do this dance where they sort of spin around and the dancers weave in and out and, and they speed up and they slow down and they move around and they kind of, they stay connected and there's this rhythm to it. There's this pattern to it. That's really, really beautiful. And sometimes as you watch the dancers dancing, it can be hard to tell who's who. Well, this is, the Greeks call this a, a perichoresis, perichoresis. It's, it's um same similar word where from where we get um choreography. So this dance perichoresis is actually the same word that the early church for the first couple hundred years gave to God. Before the church had really had the language of Trinity, the church was referring to God as perichoresis. We had this we didn't we didn't totally before we had fully developed a doctrine of the Trinity, we what we had was a metaphor of a dance. Our God is a dance. Isn't that beautiful? Listen to this from Tim Keller, a pastor in the United States. He says, each of the divine persons centers upon the other. 
None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love and delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves and adores and defers to and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. I also came across this. This is from a a British theologian named Michael Reeves. He said, It is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. The triune God is the love behind all love. He is the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty. And guys, that is the answer to the question, why? Why are we here? Why were we made? Why is history moving in the direction that it's moving? Because, friends, because there, before there was anything else, there was God. And God lived in perfect community. And he wasn't needy. And he wasn't lonely. And he wasn't bored. He wasn't violent and manipulative like, like Baal. And he wasn't annoyed with the world like like Tiamat was, God from the very beginning and before the beginning was a community full of perfect love and holiness and justice and goodness. And that is where our story starts. We are here because of him. Okay? We're here for him. We're here for God's sake. And 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 that should shape how we live. Because it's true. Show me a God I'll show you a people. Show me a people and I'll show you their God. Now, I want to pause here a minute and and, and kind of put the second part of that to the test because I think a couple examples might really be helpful. One that came to mind as I was preparing is is, uh, the whole pandemic and what we learned about ourselves during the pandemic. You know, do you remember when we were required by law to wear masks when we went out in public? you remember that? Like because of the risk of infecting one another with COVID-19, we had to wear a mask or else we wouldn't, we couldn't go into a store. Kids were required to wear masks at school. If you had a funeral, your funeral was limited to 10 people. If you had a wedding, the, you could only have as many as 10 people in the space limited by law. You couldn't go to a hospital to visit a sick person. You had to practice social distancing. This was the law. Do you remember that? Some of you are maybe trying to forget. Look, nobody enjoyed that. Nobody's, I don't know anyone who's looking back and saying about those days, like, man, I really missed COVID. Like those were the days. I think the, I think though, the worst part of it was how it divided us. Like there were some people who complied and it wasn't a big ask, but there were a lot of, there were actually a lot of people who refused to cooperate and made all kinds of excuses and reasons for why the law and the rules don't apply to them. Some of these were churches. Some of these were religious groups who said that this is an attack on our freedom of religion. Do you remember that? Did you, did you see some of this? Now, just to be clear, I'm not defending like mask mandates. I'm not even saying that the government always got it right. I'm not, that's not my point here. But I, what, what, but I do remember thinking in that time, there's an idol here. Like as I was watching people respond and refuse to, to cooperate with these laws 
and excusing it on religious grounds, I remember thinking like, man, there's an, there's an idol here. Because remember, show me a God and I'll show you a people. But show me a people and I'll show you their God. Now, suppose like aliens were looking down at our culture during the pandemic, watching the protests and watching the Walmart fights and watching the convoys lock down Ottawa for a couple of weeks. Like, what would those aliens have said is our God? It's like something mattered more than anything else in that time. And, and, and like those aliens watching, they'd make some good conclusions about, who, about what's, what's in charge of us and what matters most to us. And, and maybe for some of us, it was not what we thought. Maybe for some of us, our God through that time, our God through the pandemic wasn't who we think it was. Well, there's a, there's a word for what I think it actually was. I think it's, it's individualism. And it's like, it's one of the highest values in Western culture. It's in some ways the, the value that our Western culture was founded on. Individualism says that my rights are number one. Like any, any attempt to limit my freedom is an attack on me. I choose what's right for me. It's like my body, my choice. That's like the epitome of individualism. I thought of another example. Uh, I, I've lived in Hamilton most of my life. And in that time, my attitude towards the city has had to change a lot. Years ago, I remember I had an, an, an iPod stolen out of my car in the days of iPods. <laughs> That was frustrating. I left my car unlocked one night and that night somebody got in and stole it. And I remember when I realized it the next day what had happened, my reaction wasn't to, you know, call the police and like report that it had been stolen by some criminal. My reaction was, ah, come on, Hamilton. Like, my gosh, the one night I leave my car unlocked, Hamilton, you get in there and you take my iPod. Thanks a lot. Another time my garage got broken into and they made off with all of my tools, like everything that I had in the garage. They got everything. And I was so upset. And when I realized what had happened the next day, I remember thinking like, man, this city sucks. What are we doing here? When are we going to get out of Hamilton? And some of you have felt this way too. We've had these conversations, except here's the thing, guys. Hamilton didn't do it. Now, somebody broke the law. They stole, that was, it was criminal, it's not okay, I'm not excusing it, but, but like, come on, it's not like Hamilton is the only city with crime. It's not like, it's not like we could move out to a farm and there would be no crime, right? Now, I'm not sure if there's a name for this, but it's kind of the opposite of individualism, maybe collectivism. It's where we don't really see differences between individuals in a group. We just see them in light of the group that they represent. Now, if you sometimes stereotype people, this is your problem. This is a problem for you. Maybe you might you might look at one kind of person and you might judge that whatever's going right in their life, they didn't earn it. Maybe you look at another kind of person and you see the problems of their race or of their politics or their denomination. Now, I get it. We all have prejudices. We all make generalizations. I totally get that. Okay, but it's not like individualism is a problem on one hand and stereotyping isn't a problem on the other hand. Like both of these are problems. We need to repent of both. Don't you agree? Because both of these are at odds with a God who is three but one and one but one.
but also three. Now, let's talk about individualism again. I don't know what it looks like in your life. I know what it looks like in mine. And individualism is much more powerful than we realize. And yet, as Christians, we worship a God who is one and also three. And he always loves and serves and sacrifices and defers to the other persons. He is oriented toward the, his, the community that he is. Okay? He isn't selfish and individualistic. He doesn't, he doesn't consider it a ripoff to lay down his rights and preferences for the other, other persons in the Godhead. That's, it's in the nature of the Godhead to lay their rights down. And what that means is, I need to do the same. I can't possibly worship a triune God and insist on always getting my way. I can't possibly follow this God and refuse to lay down my individual preferences and freedoms from time to time. And I hope that that hits us this morning. If we can't or or won't lay down our individualism, then maybe our God isn't who we think he is. Because show me a God and I'll show you his people. And show me a people and I'll show you their God. Well, the same is true for collectivism or whatever you want to call it. God's people should be the first to recognize the beauty of a diverse community. We should be the first to recognize the uniqueness of the individual because God is one and God is three. And within the Godhead, those distinctions matter. Don't you agree? Like we wouldn't say that the father died on the cross. When we tell the gospel, we wouldn't say that, I hope. When we tell the story of the early church, we wouldn't say that it was the son who showed up as tongues of fire at Pentecost, right? I I hope you wouldn't say that. Meanwhile, I think there's a lot of us who assume that we can know everything about a person's story just because we look at them and we can tell that they're a woman or they're a man or they're a Muslim or they're black or they're white or they're gay or they're old, And we won't go out of our way to bless a person because we judge them to be liberal or conservative and we think that they're all the same. We see them in light of the community or the group that they represent and we fail to make distinctions. We fail to recognize uniqueness. And that's wrong. It's not okay. Our neighbors should feel seen and known because that's how we're going to reflect the God that we worship. We should have all kinds of respect and appreciation for for nuance and for distinctions and for uniqueness because that's what our God is like, don't you think? And if we don't or if we won't, if we're going to write people off because of their stereotypes, look, like I I get it. That's that's fine. Everybody does that. Like, if that's how we want to relate to our neighbors is in light of the stereotypes that they represent, if that's what we want to do... Nobody's going to judge you for that because that's what everybody does. It's just that if you do, if you stereotype people, your God might not be who you think it is. You might think you're a Christ follower. We might think that we're, you know, practicing the way of Jesus when really our God is our fear or our envy. Because show me a God and I'll show you his people. Show me a people and I'll show you their God. And friends, our story begins before the beginning with a God who is three and who is one. And he gives and receives love 
and holiness and glory. And he invites us all to, to join the dance and to be like him and to be with him. Well, here are the take-it-home questions for this week. Question one is this. Which of God's characteristics means the most to you in this season of life? Okay, which of God's attributes means the most to you right now? Number two, who is it sometimes hard for you to see and appreciate as a unique, beautiful individual? Okay, who is it sometimes that, who is it sometimes hard to see and appreciate? And, and how do you feel, how do you think that God feels toward them? Question three, which of your freedoms can make you lose your cool when it's threatened? Which of your freedoms can make you lose your cool when it is threatened? I'll close with this quote from a Canadian theologian. His name is Jürgen Schultz. It's a, it's a long one, but it's a good one. Jürgen Schultz says, We unconsciously reflect the character of the divine being we believe in. Not exactly inviting when your God is like Caesar. If, on the other hand, we've been caught up in the self-giving love of the triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we have tasted and seen the unspeakable goodness and grace of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, how can we not be humble, grateful, and generous? We will reflect the overflowing kindness and magnanimity of our God. Forgiven people forgive. Welcomed people welcome others. The recipients of grace bestow grace. Their failures have been overwhelmed by mercy, and they can now act accordingly. Those who have been drawn into the abounding life of the triune God find themselves spreading kindness and goodness and joy. They have been blessed and can afford to bless others, even the ones who are not very agreeable or doctrinally correct. They don't need to zero in on others' errors because their Heavenly Father doesn't. They can be generous with words and attitudes and resources because they've come to know a God of unstoppable goodness. They can value relationships because that is what the three-in-one God is all about. They can love the lost in all their lostness because that's the kind of love heaven lavishes on sinners. People become like their God. And if that is the case, you will want to make sure you've got the right God, the triune God who lives in the eternal dance of glory, goodness, and grace. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.